I'm back in plenary session, virtual edition. I'm joined by Dr. Adam Seafew from the University of Chicago, professor of medicine and beloved medical educator. He's got a new podcast. This is part of our new series, allowing junior podcasters to get their foot in the business. Adam, it's great to see you. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's my second podcast, though. Aren't I ahead of you on that? That's right. Just the numbers of podcasts? I have two podcasts. I got the VPZD. I got this. You've got That's Symptoms right. Diagnosis, and you've got the Bucksbaum Institute. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so what is this new show you're launching, this Bucksbaum Buxbaum, yeah. and you're the director of teaching people how to be a good physician. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> so I came on uh, with the Buxbaum Institute this summer. Uh, the Buxbaum <laughs> Institute has been active here at the University of Chicago since 2011. And it's an institute really dedicated towards fostering clinical excellence in a whole lot of ways. Um, mentoring young physicians, holding people up as uh, sort of examples of excellent patient care, um, people with real excellence in the patient-doctor relationship. We also fund a bunch of research. Um, and we're working kind of this year to bring our activities a little bit more outside the walls of the University of Chicago. Um, we're publishing a uh, journal insult, uh, insert at Academic Medicine, and we're starting oh. this podcast called The Clinical Excellence Podcast. The Clinical Excellent Podcast oh, and Academic Medicine. That's a good partnership. So yeah. I guess when, when I hear clinical excellence, what you mean is the thing that uh, gets glossed over these days, which is how the doctor conducts themselves in the room with the patient, the doctor-patient relationship. Is that where you're starting? That is very much the case. And um, we're at least starting with three <clears throat> formats uh, of this mm -hmm. podcast. Uh, we're going to have discussions with physicians about the really challenging parts of the doctor-patient relationship. So some of the initial episodes are things like dealing with medical errors, um, dealing with giving second opinions <coughs> to patients when they don't really want to hear what the second opinion you're going to mm, give is, um, dealing with breaking bad news when it's unexpected. Uh, and then we're going to go a little bit further and we're going to actually have discussions with patients about their relationship with the healthcare field, get some feedback about sort of important interactions they've had with physicians. And then we will dive into some research that's either funded by the Bucksbaum Institute or kind of you know, Bucksbaum adjacent, um, things that we'd be interested in. You know, is there actually really good research into how we can use the patient-doctor relationship for the betterment of people's health? Oh, that's fascinating. And uh, I think it uh, pertains to sort of what I listened to. You allowed me a sneak preview in one of your early <laughs> episodes with Dr. Kevin Rogan, who I know well, a surgical oncologist from University of Chicago, does a lot of Whipples uh, uh, for... Yeah. Uh, for localized pancreas cancer. And he was talking about, you know, that ever common and ever hard conversation. You go in to do a Whipple, you find metastatic disease, and you yeah. have to call it off. Um, as I was listening to him, you know, I was thinking about something about the Whipple. And I tasked somebody I work with to look into this. But, <laughs> you, know, <clears throat> you know, this is a big surgery. The, right. uh, 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 the, the removal of the pancreas, the reconnecting of all those pipes down yeah. there. Um, it, yeah. It's a big surgery. And when they do do it on people with localized pancreas cancer, we know that, you know, 80, 90, even more percent have microscopic disease elsewhere. And yeah. the surgery, although it's often talked about as if it's curative, you know, in long-term follow-up, that tail just keeps kind of trickling down. Right. Um, right. Uh, yet surgeons justify it even in that setting and saying like, look, even though it didn't cure you, it improved your symptoms because the last thing you want is a big 
had a pancreas mass causing you symptoms. Sure, sure, sure. So if that's the logic that, you know, it's not necessarily curative, but it does alleviate symptoms, then my question is, why do you abort mission if you find a little microscopic studying on the peritoneum? A macroscopic studying. Yeah. The only di it's arbitrary because there's microscopic studying there and you do it. And if it's macroscopic and you can right. see it, you abort mission. But that seems to me an arbitrary line that you have created. Thoughts? <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's a really interesting question. And I'll get back to my discussion on the podcast after answering you here. Um, you know, we're always thinking about endpoints and what the appropriate endpoints of studies are. And it's true. I mean, I think that we've accepted the Whipple as we're doing this as a curative surgery. And yes, sometimes that fails. Um, but it would be super interesting um, to have a study where you have, you know, really multiple arms and where you're saying, look, you know, the purpose is of our surgery is for cure. And, you know, that does happen, right? We've all seen that in our career. Um, we think the surgery cured the patient. Yes. Um, but you're right. Most of the patients who I feel like come out of uh, a Whipple with a, you know, quote unquote, curative surgery, you know, three, five years later, they end up with recurrent disease. Um, and I think that those people have done better. Uh, because of their surgery, and especially in these days where the surgery is so much less morbid than it was, you know, 20 years ago. Um, but I can't say I know that, right? right. We don't really have that information. Um, and would that patient who you abort the <clears throat> surgery after 30 minutes rather than finishing yeah. it six hours later, would that person have been better if you just went through and did the entire surgery no matter what you found? Yeah, I guess that's the question. I mean, uh, I, I, I totally agree with your summary, which is that I don't know that those people are better off the ones in whom we are pursuing cure. Um, but uh, I do know 95% of them will relapse. I mean, that's yeah, been shown in yeah, a number of elegant yeah. series. And so it's, it's not just a little percentage of microscopic disease that's out there. It's got to be, you know, the lion's right, share. Right, and so then right. I start to wonder of that dividing line. And I'm sure that dividing line exists because no surgeon wants to um, go into that operation uh, knowing that there's a 0% chance of cure. Uh, yeah. So, you know, hope springs eternal and even a few percentage points are better than zero. Right. And, and you know, maybe given that the, <clears throat> surger, the surgical technique has gotten so much better, maybe we're actually at um, a place that we could study that, right? Because there was no way that 20 years ago, when people took weeks to recover from their Whipple, you were going to do a Whipple in somebody you didn't think was curing disease. Um, but at this point where I see people, you know, leaving the hospital a couple of days later and recovered when they come back to me, you know, a couple of weeks later, um, you know, maybe it's worth it in someone who you say, look, we have not cured you, um, but we're trying to figure out if we've helped you anyway. You know, we have like three uh, manuscripts under review that all are yeah. different study designs for randomized control trials and surgery. Uh, I won't go through the specific things, but I will tell you, oh, that's a hard peer review crack. <laughs> they got a million reasons why these parachutes could never be studied, uh, but we will persist. I can imagine um, so it's a very interesting discussion you have with Dr. Rogan, and I think that you know, I've, I can't imagine, but it's got to be a hard conversation, even though he says how much he prepares people for it, to come back into that uh, hospital waiting room. We got the family there and you're coming and they know the surgery was supposed to take many, many hours. And now you're done in one hour, 45 minutes. Yeah. So they know yeah. something happened that wasn't good. And then you have to break the news to them that unfortunately went in and you found this disease. And even though people are to expect it, they know, you know, he quoted one in five that this is going to happen. Yeah. 
you know, it's got to be heartbreaking to be that one in five. Right. I, I was interested in having the conversation because I think both you and I, when we break bad news, it's never out of the blue, right? Um, somebody's coming to a visit, you know, their scans are pending. We called them back in because of a test result. Um, you know, they know how they're feeling. And it's a discussion to say, look, I'm going to give you news that you're expecting, but I'm going into more detail. And if you're surprised by something, it's going to be the therapy that I'm recommended or that I'm recommending that, you know, we're done with therapy here. Um, I was interested in talking to a surgeon because like, you know, all of us are used to watching television programs and seeing the surgeon coming out and talking to a family of something that they had no idea was, was going to happen and people scream and fall down and faint. Um, and it was really interesting to talk to him that his approach almost is to try to make those discussions more of what we experience on the medicine side, where, listen, you know all the possibilities going into this. Um, we're going to hope for the best, prepare for the worst. And so most of those discussions end up being um, you know, a little bit more comfortable. He was he was interesting because as as a you know as a as a very experienced surgeon and having done multiple kinds of surgery and have you know worked in trauma where you're working with people who you don't even know, um, he certainly has had some uh, some you know devastating experiences mm -hmm. where the first time you meet a family is to give them the worst news imaginable. You know, um, from my med school class, a couple of. Uh close colleagues and a, a good friend went into neurosurgery and that's a field where yeah, yeah. you know you 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 go in for a simple elective case and you come out and basically the family member is dead uh, or will effectively right. be brain dead uh, or alternatively somebody had a trauma and you go in trying to save them or they can't make it and and those kind of conversations have got to be um, incredibly difficult um, the conversations that we have a lot in oncology as you say uh, even though they can be very tough conversations Oftentimes, people do know it's coming because there's a scan. Or yeah. more than that, they know their own body, and their body's been telling yeah. them the answer that you are just articulating yeah. to them. They know how they've been feeling for six weeks, eight weeks, yeah. twelve weeks. You know, and and yeah. and it's hard, and it's sometimes you're just naming the thing that they have not yet let themselves name. Right. Yeah. When you mentioned neurosurgery, I, I know both you and I are a big fan of. Um, that Marsh book, yes. um, Do No Harm, uh, which is sort of reflections on his career of really, you know, m maybe some medical errors, but mostly just poor outcomes he's had. Um, and the experience with both talking to family members, but also living with the people who, you know, in his words, he says, like, I've ruined this person, right? Mm. Um, and there are a lot of really, you know, almost beautiful discussions of, of those conversations with family members about the outcomes of their loved ones uh, in the operating room. Yeah, it's a great book. And I think uh, he, he, he brings that sort of literary perspective to a lifetime of neurosurgery, yeah. which is really what makes it so great. Now, yeah. I want to ask you this. Uh, clinical excellence, it's different than other concepts. And this is something that you once said to me, and I think you wrote it in our first book, um, that uh, there's so many different types of doctors who are all beloved by their patients. You know, <laughs> right. the, the curmudgeon, the, the difficult right. doctor, uh, the, the ultra-compassionate doctor, the doctor that will cry with you, and a huge range, and a huge range of yeah. doctors, but they yeah. each find their patients who love them yeah. for it, love yeah. them for who they are. So how do, you, how do you set about teaching clinical excellence when clinical excellence is itself sort of very diverse? Yeah, that's, that's such a... 
um, you know, I think it's probably what underlies it is just mindfulness, right? Mm-hmm. Is is kind of being a third person in that room, watching you with the patient and seeing what patients need, <clears throat> right? Um, and we can't all be the perfect doctor for every patient. I always feel we are who we are. That works perfectly for, I don't know, 90% of patients. Um, there's probably another 10% of patients who we can do an excellent job for, um, but we're putting on a little bit of an act. And I don't say that in a bad way. I say that that we're saying like, look, I'm reading what this patient needs. This patient needs some paternalism now, and I'm going to shift from my usual discussion to a more paternalistic approach. Um, but there, then there's some people who like, you know, you're just not right for, and this person needs to find another doctor. Mm. Um, and it's interesting. I've over my career have had multiple times where a patient wants to switch doctors and there's pushback from the practice about having Mm -hmm. that patient switch to another doctor. Mm -hmm. And I'm always like apoplectic when that happens. I'm like, what what are you doing? This patient's either going to leave the institution and go somewhere else to find care, or they're going to have a miserable experience with the doctor they're having. That benefits absolutely nobody. Um, Sure, if it's a patient who's seen, you know, 10 of the 12 doctors in the practice, you know, (laughs) that's a whole nother issue. Um, um, But I, we just have to, we just have to accept that, that we're not all perfect. You know, the the patient who's had 10 of the 12 doctors is um, often reminds me of uh, the times the resident asked me about a case, uh, but they presented it to eight or uh, 10 UCSF physicians who have not been able to solve the case. I said, what do you think? You think I'm going to solve this? I'm not smarter than those 10 people. You know, Uh, I'm certainly not going to be smarter than those 10 people. Now, let me ask you something about attention. I see. And I wonder if you if you think there's attention, too. Um. You know, I was a medical student not that long uh, ago, 2005 to 2009, and we had students um, who were, you know, across the entire spectrum of sociopolitical beliefs, but including the faction of students who I think are incredibly activated for social justice um, and for improving the world. Uh, And to be honest with you, those were the ones I was closest to because I still view myself as like that kind of person uh, in my own way. Uh, always the, the kind of work we're doing in biomedicine is a type of advocacy, advocacy for evidence, because I believe evidence is the mechanism by which you achieve a lot of those social, so, social justice issues. Um, yet even the most, most outspoken among that group um, was different than I think the most outspoken among the group today. And I'll give you one example. The example is the University of Michigan white coat ceremony. Now you and I, I know we've talked offline many times, we're both pro-choice people. We both believe that safe and effective abortion, one, it is really necessary for healthcare. I mean, it is part of what healthcare means. And also it's necessary for, I think, the stable functioning of a society. And if you take it away, you don't have abortions go to zero. You just drive them into very unsafe conditions, which leads to unnecessary death and disability for both women and babies alike. It's not a good system. So, you know, we are supporters, I think, of pro-choice policies. The speaker at the white coat ceremony, by all accounts, a beloved clinician, she teaches the spirituality and medicine program. She herself, in an interview in a magazine that, by the way, I'm pretty sure nobody actually reads. (laughs) Nobody actually reads that magazine because I never heard of it. It's some Substack magazine um, for, I think, Catholic physicians. Um, She was quoted as saying that she believed, you know, that she had a pro-life viewpoint 
Although I read it very carefully to say, you know, where exactly does she fall? This is not a uh, you know, monolithic category. It's a huge category. Does she believe in exceptions for rape, for incest? Does she believe in you know, a certain amount of weeks? And, and none of that's there. You know, I don't know exactly what her position is on this issue. But she has stated that on record. And it's the white coat ceremony. She was chosen by the fourth year medical students and the faculty. She was chosen by students who've worked with her, you know, who are not that much older than the incoming class. At most, they could be four years older. Um, and she was asked to give this lecture about, you know, what does it mean to be a doctor? The classic white coat ceremony um, lecture. Um, and, you know, the students uh, initially protested, some of them. That protest fell on deaf ears. The university reiterated that they, they, they don't punish people for personal views. Um, and then ultimately, when, when that moment arose, uh, about 50% of them stood up and walked out, and you know some of the family members walked out. And then she gave a talk. Oh, the piece I'm not telling is that um, she had stated a priori that I am not going to talk about that one issue that we disagree about. This will not be about abortion. It's going to be about what does it mean to be a doctor in the grand scans of life. But nonetheless, 50% walked out. Um, and then they missed a talk that I thought was actually kind of sweet. Um, these are always cliched talks. Her talk is, you know, within the genre of cliché, but it's less cliché than most. I actually thought she had a clever spin on things and referenced Aristotle in a way that, uh, as someone who's read Aristotle, even I hadn't thought of that. Okay, my point is this. These students are coming into the field of medicine, and I feel like they haven't learned, or, or they're entering with a strong view that is going to be counter to the one thing that unites all excellent, I mean, the clinicians, which is you have to be tolerant. You have to be tolerant of the patient who doesn't do what you say, who, who's in a wheelchair with a big Trump-Pence bumper sticker on the back, as I've witnessed. You have to be tolerant of the patient who disagrees with you about abortion or death penalty and brings it up unprovoked. You know, you're having a conversation about, you know, multiple myeloma and they're talking to you about the death penalty or uh, about housing or about, you know, because they read in the news today. And you have to find a way to tactfully say, you know, oh, I'm not a fan of Trump, but you seem to be a huge fan. Is You know, I, I liked him on The Apprentice, you know, which is true. I, I did like him. On, I wish he had stayed there. But, you know, I can say I liked him on The Apprentice, you know, um, and you're going to have to talk to people who are pro-life. And, 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 and I just think that, okay, so that's my question to you. Um, is there a tension between this new youthful philosophical movement? And I think I would define the movement as that in order to extinguish these ideas we disagree with, we cannot even engage with anybody on any issue if they hold any of these ideas. And that's their philosophy. Um, but that, I think, fundamentally is in conflict with being a good doctor. Thoughts? Sure. I'll stay far away from the um, Michigan issue since you know, I came, on, I came right. on the podcast here to you know promote my own podcast and you're going to try to draw me into an abortion debate. <laughs> uh, hey, hey, there's no greater way to promote your podcast than getting canceled right now. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, as physicians, right, our number one duty is to advocate for our patients, right? Um, and your patient is who you're in the room with, who has chosen you as a physician, you are working for that person. <clears throat> and you're basically, because of the oaths we take, right? You're dedicated to caring for that person until they no longer want you as your doctor. Yes, we can terminate care uh, with patients, but really over the course of a career, that happens, you know, less than a handful of times. Um, I've been, 
you know, in attending for 25 years now, I have terminated the care with two patients in my career, right? That's incredibly uncommon. Um, and so I think your, your very first uh, duty is to say, how can I care for this person? How can I meet them where they are? I need to accept them, even if everything about them, their beliefs is abhorrent to me, right? And in fact, throughout the years, you know, there have been so many people who spoke with pride about, you know, caring for that person in the emergency room with a tattoo they found offensive or whatever else, right? That's what we do. That's why we're respected by society. That's where, why we carry a lot of privilege. Um, now, I absolutely understand um, that people also feel the need to advocate for their beliefs outside of their care of the patient. Um, um, I think it's actually sort of one of my flaws um, that I've never been terribly good at that. Um, I am so kind of paralyzed by gray, gray area often that I have a hard time, you know, pushing really strongly uh, for a view on just about anything. Um, but man, people do that terrifically. And probably um, when they do it well and they're advocating for something which is really f um, in the best interest of people's health in general, they may very much have more of an impact than, you know, Adam Seafew, who's sitting in the office seeing whatever, 12 people in a half day, right? I totally respect that. Um, but I do think that as a doctor, the primary, um, the primary calling is, is, is for the individual you're taking care of. Um, and certainly, 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 you can advocate on a bigger stage, on a bigger platform, um, but that shouldn't interfere with um, giving care to an individual. I think, uh, you know, I, I completely agree with everything you say that uh, I, th I think it's, um, and there's been a few times in my career where uh, I will disguise it. Uh, we're over at, a, at, um, uh, at the VA hospital and there's a veteran who may uh, proudly say a political belief that uh, my resident, for instance, disagrees with. And once, my resident and the veteran got in an argument about it. And I was just like, okay, easy, easy, tiger. Yeah, e yeah. You know, easy, yeah. easy, easy, both. E I mean, yeah. like, you know, first of all, we're not out here for votes, you know, <laughs> and this is just one vote, okay, right. you know? Okay, and then we're in a very deeply blue state, so you switching this vote is not gonna, not gonna change anything. And then this guy is really sick, he's really sick. And we have to focus on his being sick and how we can make him feel better. Um, and we can't be, um, you know, to some degree, uh, distracted. Um, yes. You can't be distracted as a doctor from your mission, which is, as you say, to be the advocate for the patient. Now that somebody's going to say, well, this is not the patient. This is a colleague. This is a colleague um, that they're walking out on. Um, but, you know, I ask myself, what, what, what is the, every time you stand, you make, you, you do something, you're making a principled choice. What's the universal principle? And the principle I see is that if somebody holds a view on an issue you believe is very important, and I would put this in a very important issue, it is a very important issue, um, you are not going to engage with that individual, even if they're a colleague and even if they're well-respected, on any other issue. That's what they're saying. And so, okay, so if there's a nephrologist who has different views on immigration policy than I do, and I'm uh, pro, you know, as a child of immigrant, I'm pro, you know, uh, free and, 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 and fair immigration, um, am I not going to learn about the nephron? 
you know, and, and, and I think we see example of this with Lena Wen, uh, who was asked to speak at the American Public Health Conference, and uh, uh, she was, um, you know, uh, vilified uh, by the public health people, and, and there's a petition going around for her not to speak, even though as far as I can tell, she is probably like 97% on their page, uh, uh, being a progressive Democrat former president of Planned Parenthood. One of the allegations was that, you know, she hasn't come out strong on the abortion issue being pro-choice, but she was the former president of Planned Parenthood, which, you know, I can't imagine getting more more in it than that. Um, and uh, and then the other allegation was she was fat phobic because she has dared state that eating a Krispy Kreme donut every day was not good for health. And I didn't know, I didn't know that was controversial. Um, Okay, so I guess, I don't know, I just, I feel like uh, maybe the tension hasn't fully hit, uh, that people are still able to compartmentalize colleagues and people who speak from patients, but I think it's moving in that direction very quickly, and I, and I worry that this, this philosophy is going to really hurt us. Um, to say one thing about the Michigan issue which is hard, is that in today's world where everything gets so quickly shared, um, you know, these are um, <clears throat> young people um, at a very, very, very raw time, right? This was soon after the Dobbs decision, um, um, who I think got judged um you know, in various ways from both sides, right? Um, and I think these people will look back in six months, six years, you know, 20 years, um, and have much more kind of nuanced um, opinions on whether what they did was right or wrong. Um, and, you know, had this happened to us in medical school, right? Nobody would have known. <laughs> You know, it would have been a discussion the next day in class, and that would have been about it. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a tough world to advocate in these days because you can, you can definitely believe that if you're advocating outside of your bubble, that fifty percent of the people listening to you will disagree and will push back pretty hard on on what you've done. You know, that's really interesting. Um, I don't. Yeah, I I agree with everything you said, but I just don't think it would have happened in our world. Why? Because I think that um, that uh, our culture and our peers um, did not reward you for taking these stances in the way that their modern culture rewards them for it and gives them status and 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 quote unquote mm, points. Mm. Um, and uh, and uh, I think being a student is hard because you lack. Um, uh, you feel powerless in part because you are, I mean, you, not only are you the yeah. lowest rung of the totem pole, you, you know, you, you don't even know what you, you know, you don't even know half the things they're saying. I mean, I remember I yeah. did not, I, like years later, I started to understand the full, like what were they all, all the conversation, what was it really about? Um, and I think in a place like that, it's, it, these kinds of issues are a, a, a way to sort of gain control, um, uh, have very clear black and white when, you know, it's a lot more ambiguity and a lot of uh, uncertainty. Well, uh, I mean, I think it is true that students actually have more power than they have, than they had, you know, in your day and in my day. Um, and that's why we see these things, um, uh, right? And because, some of it is good because they should speak out when, yep. go on. Yes, and, and they have a platform. And, you know, part of their platform is to say, boy, you know, if we do this, this is going to get out there and people will see this and this will have an impact. Um, if you had walked out on some lecture in medical school, nobody would have cared, you know. Um, 
Probably your teacher would have been happy. They wouldn't have had to deal with you. <laughs> I walked out on many, but it was just because I was, uh, I, I had to go study for the test. Or <laughs> it was really boring. That was, that was really the crux you of were, my... You, you were all about your step one board score. <laughs> <laughs> I needed 280 reasons to go into internal medicine, as they say. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, so to shift gears, let's talk about sensible medicine. And we'll come back to your podcast. Um, sensible medicine is something that, you know, you, I, Mandrola, Marty, uh, uh, Yona Christia, many others uh, have kind of put together and launched. And it's just a collection of very different doctors, uh, doctors from Europe, uh, doctors from this country, cardiologists, oncologists, internists, um, and, uh, who are trying to have a shared newsletter where we write about, you know, the range of medicine. You've had a number of really touching um, commentaries about the art of medicine. Mandrola's had study of the week. We've had some debates, which we'll talk about in a second. But I'm curious, uh, you know, how do you feel writing for, you know, this kind of broad newsletter? Uh, you enjoy it? What's what's going on with it? Yeah, I, I have to say, um, when you first um, sort of pitched this idea, I didn't quite know what to expect. Uh, but I've, I've really enjoyed it. Um, and I've sort of enjoyed the almost collegiality of it, um, because I think it is people picking issues that they are interested in. Um, and <clears throat> we've already in whatever, it's been a month or so, you know, covered an incredibly wide range of issues, um, uh, you know, from how to read the study to, you know, the articles we've put out there about journalism, right? Mm -hmm. um, to, of course, we have to go after COVID a little bit, to me with my frou-frou reflections on practice. Um, you know, I think it's wonderful. And I'm really hoping um, we already seem to be well-received with, a, you know, a lot of readers. And I'm hoping that people sort of keep up and see it as a place that, look, I'm not going to read everything that's on sensible medicine every day. Um, but it's going to be something that, you know, I don't know, maybe two, three, four times a week, there's something there which is worthwhile, um, may take me a little bit out of my comfort zone, may get me to look at something in a little bit different way. And I think that if we can do that, that would be wonderful. Um, I'm also... I'm, I'm really inspired that, you know, we've already had people reaching out to us with either ideas for us to cover or with things that they'd like to be on Sensible Medicine because they think it would sort of fits with the voice. Um, and I, I, I love that. Uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. And uh, uh, the you got me to do some debates, which were fun. And I also <laughs> want to make a pitch to the audience. If anyone's listening, if you read something on Sensible Medicine that you love, write to us. If you read something on Sensible Medicine that you loathe, Write the rebuttal. Send it to us. We'd love to hear it out. Now, I will put an asterisk, uh, which I think people have difficulty with. I don't think people know what ad hominem means anymore. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's really nothing but – I mean, many people who I, you know, don't think are fringe, they're thoughtful people, maybe even doctors, uh, they, they, can't do, they can't even talk about something without ad hominem. Everything is in the, the guise of, oh – John Mandrola once said this or did this, or John Mandrola's an EP doc. How is he commenting about why? Why is an EP doctor? Adam, what is? What, you're not a pediatrician. You're not a. You know, you never worked in pediatrics. Uh, you know, that's about the person writing it. What do you disagree with about the content written? This is like 101 stuff. Um, you know, and and I think ad hominem is is easy when you feel like you disagree, but it's much harder to articulate why you think it's wrong and where you think it's wrong. It's um, yeah. the yeah. base thing to do. 
but it it comes across poorly and it's not going to it's not going to persuade people really and we can't publish that i yeah. mean that's we, it's just terrible i mean what are you going to do to us so that's the only caveat yeah 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 but but i think i mean we are open to um you know, good evidence-based rebuttals because there are rebuttals to pretty much everything these days. Um, and, you know, I think one of the articles which got a lot of pushback um, was a look at kind of how Sweden dealt with COVID, uh, especially around children, but in general. Um, and there is certainly data that supports the idea that Sweden did a remarkable job, you know, in a good way uh, with COVID. And there's other data that's that would say that, oh, my God, they really botched it. And, you know, they'll be paying for this for generations. Um, I think that's what makes this such an interesting space right now. Um, And yeah, you know, argue it one way, but um, rather than saying, boy, this person's an idiot, um, you know, make the argument in the other direction uh, and people will recognize it. Yep, <laughs> there's complexity here. And once you've lived through two and a half years of a pandemic, if you don't think managing a pandemic is complex, you know, you haven't been paying attention, as they say, right? As they say, yeah, I, I think that's a great one. You know, I could and, you know, for one of these times I want to do an exercise where I, um, oh, the church bells are chiming. I want to do an exercise where maybe for the sake of argument, write both sides, I'll write both sides of the debate, you yeah, know, or, yeah, yeah, you know, just, yeah. just to show how it's possible. You know, you could, you could argue yeah. a side that, you know, or, yeah. or, or, or we flip sides and, you know, you take the side you don't believe in and I take the side I don't believe in just to kind of, to prove yeah. how, how we could do it. Um, Sweden, I can imagine making arguments that, um, that they did a poor job. Um, the problem I have, I mean, is that, you know, um, and I certainly think they did do a poor job when it comes to the elderly and nursing homes. They did a terrible job, yes, uh, yes, especially in the first wave. Yes. They were they were liquidated. Um, but I think that uh, as time goes on, when you see by all indices, they just keep moving to the center of European nations. You know, deaths per hundred thousand and and uh, excess mortality. Right. They move to the center, move to the center, move to the center with time. Um, and when you see that, uh, then it's going to be hard to say their choices were so catastrophic that they're roughly in the middle of the pack. You know, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard, you know, it's hard to say that. And, and the real lesson is that, you know, a lot of these human choices that we feel like, we always feel like we're so powerful, omnipotent people, but in a lot of ways in the face of mother nature, um, you know, we're just specks on the earth, you know, um, uh, uh, it, it, things were going to unfold a certain way. And, you know, you can close schools or not close schools, but you know, it's going to end up roughly in the same spot. Right. And, and one of the difficulties is, you know, you can imagine a world that things could have been done in a different way and things could have turned out better. But that's an imaginary world. Um, and I think for the reasons you say, as time goes on, you know, we're all sort of going to the mean here. Um, and people will say, well, ah, it's because we screwed up. It's because we haven't done enough. Um, I'm just not sure where to blame, but maybe I'm you know, a bit of a, a nihilist in, in that, in that case. Um, you had a recent prompt for sensible medicine, which I thought was brilliant, where you asked, um, uh, a number of doctors, how are you living right now? How yeah, are you yeah. living and accounting yeah. for, you know, you're a smart person, you know, the data. And, um, we had three, I think, really interesting essays. We had, uh, uh, and, and we had invited other people to write the essays, but they didn't want to do it at the time. Push comes to shove. Okay. <laughs> One person, um, Andy Davis, um, I think his essay was probably among the three of us the most conservative 
Um, he yeah. talked about how when he has people over his house, they still sit at a distance, how he's N95-ing most of the time. Um, but he gave reasons for his position, you know, I think. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and he also showed how he's not um, sacrificed all the joy in his life. He's still meeting with his adult children. He's just found his yeah. own balance. Yeah. Um, you yeah. went, you went next and I thought it was a great essay. Um, and somebody even talked to me afterwards and they said, I, I see myself in Adam. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he says, you know, all of us, um, even when we feel like we should do X, sometimes we, we do a little bit different just to be a little precautious. And, you know, you talked about how, um, you'll wear the mask on the plane. Doesn't bother you that much. Um, but you won't wear, you, you know, you don't wear it, uh, at restaurants and you don't wear it, uh, in the boarding area. Yeah. And you, you agree there's a little irrationality to that. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and what's funny, why I sort of enjoyed writing that, and I, <clears throat> and I actually really honestly enjoyed the people in the comments who said I was an idiot. Um, <laughs> because huh. um, I, 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 A, recognize that some of the things I do are completely irrational, but you know I don't need, it's not like for my whole life, I've looked for data at every sort of behavior I've done, right? I wouldn't have gotten through life if that was the case. Um, and also, you know, I think it was about a month ago, on a, actually it was in June, because it was the last time that I sort of had major travel, that at that point, yeah, I wasn't masking at all. I wasn't masking on the airplane. I was doing nothing. Um, and, you know, people went nuts on me on Twitter of being irresponsible and an idiot. Like, how could I not mask on an airplane? Um, and then, you know, over the course of a couple of months, I'm like, well, I don't really think I need to do this. But look, we've sort of learned something and I'd be happy not to get sick with COVID or influenza or, you know, rhinovirus, you know, one through 12. Yeah, why not? Of course, I'm going to take it off when I drink my, you know, club soda and eat my peanuts, but I'm going to put it on the rest of the time. Um, and then, you know, people got mad at me um, for masking. And I was like, you know, you can't win. And so that just sort of tells you that, look, you just got to do what you think is reasonable, what you think makes you feel comfortable. And as long as you're not trying to, you know, make other people do that as well. Uh, what's the harm? Yeah, no, I think that that's right, and um, uh, and then of course the three of us. I was the one that was like <laughs> uh, not doing anything about it anymore. Um, uh, besides all the things I'm required to do, and then um, you know, um, somebody found me afterwards, and they're like, um, you know, even you are compromising. You do all the things you're required to do, and I was like, well, I mean, that's yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, it's somewhat of a compromise, yeah. but you know, I do have to like live in society, and you can't fight yeah. every yeah. every war for you know. I mean, right. you're fighting battles right. on every front all the time. You'll never get right. any work done. Um, but one thing I wanted to pick your brain about, which we talk about, but I think is tough to talk about, but it's important, is long COVID. And, you know, I read what you had written about it. I read what I had written about it. And I think, like, we're on the same page. I read what Andy had written about it. And I think he's on a different page. And I think if I were to summarize our position, it is, one, foremost principle, if somebody comes to you and says, I don't feel good, that always has to be taken very seriously. And you always have to do things to try to make them feel better. I mean, that's medicine 101. Doesn't matter how they ended up feeling bad. That's important. The second point I think we make is that anybody who gets really sick with anything, the road to being 100% is not immediate. It's always been slow. I remember I once had a sore throat, lasted eight weeks. This was like 2017. And, you know, yeah. anytime, anybody who's intubated, my God, you, you don't build that muscle strength back in the intercostals yeah. immediately. It takes a long time. Yeah. 
So absolutely, the road from critical illness is tough. Any illness is a slow path back. Absolutely, whatever concerns you should concern the doctor. But then the third part, and this is the part that I think is the tough part, which is that COVID-19 has introduced a new claim, which is that you could have had a respiratory virus and not even felt anything. You could have not even felt anything from the respiratory virus, but you will go on to have long-term damage to your brain, your heart, your kidneys, your lungs, etc., even in the absence of any sort of, with an asymptomatic disease or a very mild disease like a runny nose, for instance. And that claim, I think, is an unprecedented claim, and I think unprecedented claims require unprecedented evidence to show me that that's true. Um, and the point that... Um, that uh, um, that I was making was that, um, you know, we never believed that in 2017, uh, that like no one ever told me that you can have a rhinovirus, you don't even feel it. And then four weeks later, you know, you have uh, cardiomyopathy, um, you know, uh, uh, although there has been, you know, post-infectious uh, myocarditis, it yeah, does happen. Sure, yeah, sure, right. Sure. Um, um, uh, but to me, the most the best study was that Annals of Internal Medicine study, about 200 people, and they took the patients who had had COVID, and many of them had those symptoms, and the patients who didn't, and these were patients with mostly mild disease, and they did a battery of like hundreds of blood tests, from coagulation to T-cell immunology to uh, CRPs to D-dimers to complete blood counts to you name it, and they found nothing on average that was different except six-minute walk and, um, and history of prior anxiety disorder. And, you know, that finding doesn't tell you that long COVID, quote-unquote, is real or, quote-unquote, isn't real. As long as people are feeling bad, it's as real as it needs to be. Um, but it does help you figure out, like, you know, what drugs might you treat it with. And you might want to try, you know, in a randomized study, mirtazapine or venlafaxine or, you know, I don't know. So I'm right. curious, I don't know, how do you think about long COVID? Yeah, I mean, I'm, of course, you know, less unhinged than you are about the whole thing. Um, uh, so I, of course, agree. If you get really sick from a mycoplasmal pneumonia or COVID pneumonia, uh, it's going to take a while to get better. Um, and I certainly have seen in practice people who have, uh, you know, after a COVID infection, you know, even a mild COVID infection, um, mild persistent symptoms. I, I say mild people experiencing might might call them moderate, um, you know, worsening of migraines, tinnitus, you know, worse dyspnea on exertion, you know, worse exercise tolerance, which takes a little while to get over. Um, and I accept that. And I say, yeah, what, it's a disease that we don't know. Um, we don't have immunity to, we haven't had immunity to, we have different sort of immunity to, um, and it'll take a while to figure all this out. Um, where what I'm surprised is what you're surprised. And I think it's the thing which is most harmful um, is the people who really fear that um, even being you know, vaccinated, having had previous infections, doing well, um, that that person is going to have um, a, you know, a, an absolutely life-changing experience with COVID at this point in 2022, and that that's still paralyzing them um, from going out and doing the things they like. Um, and as you say, I don't think our clinical experience supports that. I don't think the research supports that. I don't think kind of bioplausibility supports that. Um, and I think if that's if we're going to take that seriously to the point that it affects, um, you know, how we manage public health, how we advise people, wow, we need some really powerful evidence of that. Um, 
I think the fact is people are voting with their feet and, you know, the vast majority of people are not concerned about this and are going about their lives like they were in 2019. Um, but I do feel like uh, some of this long COVID uh, news has has made life worse for a subset of people who are so worried about that, that they've really changed their lives because of it. Yeah, and that's who I worry about too. I always read these um, posts of, you know, um, my four-year-old has never gone out to play with any other child ever. And now right. that's not everybody. That's got to be, you know, one one-hundredth yeah, of one yeah, percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's still some four-year-old. I'm like, this poor child. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then the other thing I worry about is the more you constantly talk about it in the news, the more it will happen. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Absolutely. I mean, that's always been the case. Yeah. And then the other class of worries I have is that a lot of the research is not good. I mean, it's not good to look at a retrospective chart review and you say, how many times do we have this diagnosis post-COVID? And then how many times do we have this diagnosis post-influenza circa 2017? It's like, well, you've been proselytizing that this thing is out there and we have to be vigilant. So right. doctors are going to be running right. up the test. They're running up test, test, test that they never used to run. And the more you test, the more you find. And the more you tell people, the more they have symptoms. And so it's not really an apples and apples comparison. Um, and it's problematic. Um, and now they have just... And then the other thing I hate to say it is, they took a couple billion dollars and put it in a grant fund for long COVID. And, you know, research funds are important and good. But when you put a lot of incentive like that, people will do whatever it takes to get that money. And I think there's yeah. a big, it's, it's a deeper rot. It's not about long COVID. It's about anything in biomedicine. You make so much money available in such a short time frame, people will stretch to get that money. Um, it's because nobody will fund our salaries, which is a ridiculous, you know, why are we living like this? You know, if, if every university professor had their salary funded, they wouldn't be bending over backwards to write grants that are routinely not true yeah. with the exaggerations, yeah. that, you yeah. know. Um, but I, I don't know. That's not going to help us. Um, so I worry about where we're headed with that. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's come back to your, your institute. So, you know, you're somebody in your career who... As the old saying goes, you got nothing left to prove. <laughs> You're an old war horse. You know, you just came out of battle. You were in the dean's office for many years. You just, um, you just hung up your armor from that. Um, and uh, I had expected that you, like most, um, um, cl uh, uh, almost emeritus professor, no, <laughs> uh, almost. Hey, I'm not that old. <laughs> almost emeritus, but no. I would expect it that you would want to prune down. Uh, and yet the Bucksbomb drew you back in. So what is it about Bucksbomb that appealed to you? Um, you know, what makes you do this? Right. Well, I, mean, I am at the point in my career. Uh, that's, that's a bad way to start. I mean, I think throughout my career, I've just been looking for things that um, I enjoy doing and that kind of make sense with where I am at the time. And that's changed. I think that's true for most of us, right? Um, what I really loved doing in, in the year 2000 is very different from what I loved doing in 2022. Um, and Bucksbaum has uh, given me the opportunity to, you know, have really rich conversations with thoughtful doctors, you know, which I love. Um, it lets me write and edit, which I love. It clears up some space to do um, really one-on-one -on -one clinical teaching with medical students that I'm interested in. Um, and it is nice to be at a point in my career where I feel like I get no benefit from publishing in the medical literature anymore, right? Um, and I was never someone who is, 
you know, pushing back the envelope of medical science. Um, I was mostly writing thought pieces or critiquing other people. Hey, what about research. our reversal work? That was groundbreaking. That's groundbreaking. I still have the, I have the plaque right here. Look at this plaque. They mailed me that plaque for the most citations that they've ever gotten. That is no. nice. That is yeah. nice. Um, Got to send me a Xerox of it. Um, <laughs> So, um, so this sort of fits in perfectly with what I like, and actually, probably to you know combine a lot of things we've talked about, you know, the Bucksbaum Institute, the podcast, Sensible Medicine, um, are all things that at this point in my career I kind of love doing as an outlet for, uh, you know, my energy and creativity that I still have left over after you know clearing my Epicin basket, which <laughs> varies from day to day, but there's still <laughs> usually some. You know, and I want to ask you about that. And, you know, I think um, we talk so much about burnout. And I swear I've heard more about it recently than I've ever heard. And it's just every year there's more and more talk of it. And um, I hate to say it, but part of me actually thinks that um, uh, it's another one of those phenomena that the more you talk about it, the more you create the problem, actually. And that, yeah, you know, yeah, the old yeah. British saying, have a stiff upper lip. There's some truth to that. Sometimes in life, when you're facing challenges, don't allow yourself to um, become, to, to say you're overwhelmed, to admit defeat, have the stiff upper lip, go back in there, fight another day, um, and you'll be surprised what you can endure and take um, that, you, that, you know, maybe this is the philosophy of my parents coming through, um, but on this burnout issue. But I do think, I mean, there's a lot of truth to that, that there is, bur- that there, I mean, no one will discount the fact that the system is not a- always the, the friendliest, particularly for like doctors, the way in which the life of the practicing doctor has been ruined, I think is the epic inbox, inbox and uh, this sort of constant 24 seven need to respond. Whereas in the good old days, yeah. if it was important enough that you call me, you call me. And if it's not important enough, you call me, you leave me alone until the next time you see me. Um, that was a better model than the constant pinging me. And I think that does take it out of people. But I wish to suggest a second thing that takes it out of people. I'm curious your thoughts. Um, we are teaching medical trainees to build a career doing shitty research they don't want to do. And I swear, everybody has been doing, is, is, you know, they all, everybody wants to do research. And I think one of the things you said, you said you never thought of yourself as doing research that was boundary defying, which I think is not true because you did do some of that. Um, but but um, this idea that everyone has to be doing boundary defining research and necessarily that can't be true. And the idea that research is even for everybody. I, it's not for everybody, actually. And there's nothing wrong with being a good doctor. Um, and so, you know, instead of spending that Saturday doing like extracting data from a chart review to answer a question that you can't really even answer because you need to randomize to answer that question at all. You know, it's like unanswerable from your confounded chart review. Don't do that. You know, take the Saturday off or go to a baseball game or go to the wards and have the gratification of actually having a real conversation with a real person. Um, So I'm curious, what are your thoughts? I mean, do you hire anyone in general internal medicine just to be a doctor anymore? Or do they all have to do some bullshit QI or some some bullshit on their, you know, just be a doctor, just teach the residents. Is that enough or is that not even a job anymore? I have joked that what we need to do is we need to start accepting people into medical school who are, you know, less smart, (laughs) less driven, less creative. Because, you know, being a doctor is hard. But it's not rocket science, right? You don't need to be that smart. You need to work hard. You need to be able to remember a lot of stuff. You need to be organized. Um, And then I think that those people would be happier 
just doing the job, right? Just taking care of patients and wouldn't feel the need to, you know, do some research, start a company, you know, start a podcast, right? Um, um, you, 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 it is true, you can't, uh, we all have some sort of complex that, you know, allows us to be brutalized by our, our employers, right? And they ask too much of us and <clears throat> patients ask too much of us. And I understand that, man, there is certainly things in the system that could be better, you know, no question about it. Um, and we are being taken advantage of to <clears throat> a great extent, uh, and that's leading to burnout. Um, but also, Yes, um, we could also make our lives easier, right? By saying, look, we're going to focus on patient care because that's what's actually critically important and that's what we're here to do. Um, and we can also complain less. And the less you complain, right, I think the less unhappy people are, right? You always wanted to stay away from that resident who, quote unquote, had the black cloud, right? Because every resident's work was about the same. And the person who had the back black cloud was just the person who could deal with the amount of work the worst. Um, mm -hmm. And that was generally a toxic person who made you unhappy to be with. Mm -hmm. um, and that's probably a message that we could, we could spread to the, the rest of medicine outside residency. You know, that's really well put. And I hadn't thought about all that. Um, you know, one thing that's within your control is um, you don't have to bill every one of your notes a level five. You can... <laughs> You know, you can actually talk about what you actually did and you can yeah. bill a level two or three, you know, but, um, uh, and then I think people, I mean, I don't want to say this is the only reason, but obviously some people's pay goes up if they do hit those fives all the time and they hit their RV goal, et cetera. But in the grand scheme of life, you are killing yourself for like 20 grand a year. Just let it go. Let it go. You don't need the 20 grand. You know, you can let it go. We could also give up half day clinic and take a lower pay. I don't see anyone yeah. ever wanting to do that. I had a yeah. student ask me, you know, why is so-and-so very famous doctor still in patient, seeing patients every day at 9 p.m.? I said, I don't know. I mean, they don't have to do that. They could pass that along. Yeah. Um, your point about how we pick people is very interesting. I think, you know, obviously 30 years ago, you picked people, a lot of people who had had, you know, worked in a fast food restaurant or, were, you know, had some just regular job for a while uh, to pay for college. And they didn't have a million creative activities. They didn't play every instrument and speak every language and uh, have a nature and science paper at the age of 16. Now they have all this stuff and part of it is an arms race. So they have to do all this stuff. Um, you know, I feel like one, their youth is robbed. These kids from the age of 14 are already singularly on the path of medicine. The second big way they're cheated is um, they go to really prestigious schools. Their colleagues go to work for Twitter. The colleagues are making like $300,000 in year four at the age of 25. And, you know, sometimes you don't make that even as a full professor, you know. Uh, you know, you don't make that for a long time in this line of work. Um, and, and, you know, um, you don't get to create companies all the time and you don't get to do all these other things. And, and I don't know. It is, a, it is a job that's really good for somebody who takes pleasure in, I think, the simple things, a good conversation and a good decision and not the grandiose things of seeing your face on the cover of Time magazine. Um, but yeah. the things we're selecting for are seeing your face on the cover of Time magazine. Yeah, go on. Right. And, and we are 
you know, we do live in a bubble, right? Um, we're both at highly competitive institutions, academic medical centers. You know, we are seeing that. And we have to remind ourselves that there is a world outside of these, you know, frou-frou medical schools and residency programs, um, which are training people to actually be doctors and, um, you know, filling a lot of the, you know, non-academic um, medical centers and hospitals across the country. Um, and you know, we shouldn't get so caught up that everybody's doing this because probably the vast majority of doctors are actually just being doctors. Um, I think you and I tend to get a little bit burnt out with the people who, um, you know, maybe should either be a doctor or should go and do something else with their, uh, you know, with, with their creative activities. Um, That's well put. So who are the, who are the guests coming up on your show? So um, already, I mean, we have a whole bunch of recordings done, and I think uh, some of the topics we have uh, Wei Wei Lee actually talking about burnout, mm-hmm. and the um, the name of that podcast is uh, Burnout for Doctors Who Hate Talking About Burnout. Um, <laughs> Jim Woodruff is talking about complexity in medicine and therefore complexity in med- medical education. Um, you know, what makes um, medicine um, more than a complicated task, but a complex task, and why that makes it so hard to train doctors and why it makes it so hard to um, um, uh, to sort of grade doctors uh, as they come through the system. Uh, Dr. Sarah Stein, as I think I mentioned before is talking about giving second opinions um, when second opinions are not actually desired by patients. Mm. Um, We have a a psychiatrist who's going to be talking about um, counter-transference in the um, patient-doctor relationship and how we people who are not in psychiatry, how it's so important how we respond to um, to our patients. And so I think we're going to be touching on a lot of really interesting topics um, that I think certainly doctors who think a lot about how they interact with patients will be interested in. But I actually think that probably a lot of thoughtful patients um, will be interested in listening to these conversations and, you know, understand, you know, what's happening on the other side of the table uh, as they talk to their physician. The production quality is good. I listened to the first uh, clip, and uh, the content is really interesting. Uh, I'm going to love to listen I, in. So where will we find these podcasts? What's it, what's it called they, on, on the store? Bucks Bomb? Uh, so um, when it comes out, we will be launching this in the um, middle of September. Okay. It will be called the Clinical Excellence Podcast. And as they say, it <clears throat> will be available wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever you get your, wherever podcasts <laughs> are sold, I see. And, exactly. will there, and there won't be any ads in the middle for mattresses? Or no supplements? Ads. No, no, ads. <laughs> no ads. No ads. Um, and and I think what what it's crazy to say that I'm most proud of this, but I'm, what I'm most proud of is that the preparation for these podcasts are three questions, um, and we try to keep each episode to about 20 minutes, um, so they will really be quick listens. And so I think we're hoping that every other week you can stop in, get a quick listen, and move on, uh, and hopefully learn something, something which will make you a better doctor, something that as a patient will make you understand medicine a little bit better, um, and maybe sort of pique your interest to some research which you wouldn't have come upon otherwise. So that's not my style. I like a long interview <laughs> where the interview the interviewee fatigues in the middle, and then eventually they slip up and they say what they really think about the University of Michigan walkout. 
they uh, eventually they slip up and then I get that. Um, okay, my last thoughts on this issue, I feel like, and I'm curious here uh, about yours, is that you know people always ask me if I'm going to be an intern, if I'm going to be um, a third year, you know, what is it that what is it the thing that you think um, that I should do? And what I always say is that the thing that um, is hard to do every day and the system kind of takes it out of you because you're tired is to always be curious. You know, like, um, why are we doing what we're doing and start to dig into it and kind of get into the history and try to get into the evidence? And even if it's just a small question every day, you kind of go down the rabbit hole on, um, you finish your training with just so much more that you know and you've seen and a, a much broader perspective about medicine and the uncertainty because everything in medicine that seems really, really certain, um, the more you dive in. I'll give you a good example. Recently, we had this like, well, this is, all, it's not just recently, it's always happening. The question of hit. Does the patient have hit, 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 heparin-induced thrombosis? thrombosis. Um, and there's a, there's a hit score, okay? And then they say, well, they score such and such. And then I, and then I had to say, you know, that just doesn't feel right to me because this person's competing explanations for low platelets are so much stronger. And then I was like, where the hell does this score come from? And then so I was gone. For like two days, I'm in the weeds on all the papers that drive the score. And, 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 and there's, a, conf and there's um, a conditioning problem, which is that to derive the score, the score can only be derived on people in whom the doctor was suspicious enough for hit that they sent the test in the first place. And that's not everybody with the high, you know? So it's got this conditioned on you were so worried about hit you sent it and you weren't satisfied with the explanations at hand and so suddenly the score which appears like you know moses himself delivered is not so sacrosanct it is you know um much more limited than you think and judgment is much better than you think um and so i mean that's just a small thing and we're working on writing this up into a more coherent narrative um but you know that's there for everything every single test you send is like this right yeah my uh, I have an interesting perspective on HIT, having trained at a time that we had no therapy for HIT. So if you saw somebody's platelets dropping on heparin, you stopped their heparin. Um, and there was no anticoagulation. Um, and the complications were exceedingly rare. Um, and so as I've moved into a time where like, oh my God, you know, this person has to be on Argatraban or whatever we're using at the time, uh, surprising to me. But as far as advising students, um, I think your question is great. You know, there, there is a privilege to being a third year medical school student of having time, right? Yes, they're the things you have to learn as you're a third year. Um, but you also have time to say, huh, interesting. Why are we doing this? Let me look up the data, as you say. But there's also the, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. You know, everybody's run out the clock on their duty hours. Everything's, you know, ended. That's the time to just go back, sit by the patient's bed, talk to the patient, get to know the patient. Um, and it's not only helpful for you to know what's going on with your patient, it's not only helpful to the patient because it's somebody else who's getting to talk to them and they're just not watching Wheel of Fortune for 24 hours. Um, but it actually really helps you as a medical student remember things. I, for years and years and years, when I oriented the third year, med third year students onto the internal medicine practice, I would talk to them about this patient of mine who had, you know, non-A, non-B hepatitis, non-A, non-B cirrhosis um, as a medical student. Um, and, 
you know, I learned everything about that, which turned out to be hepatitis C, uh, you know, known years later. Um, and I learned everything about that. I learned everything about end stage um, liver disease. I learned everything about, you know, his ascites. And I remembered it because it was linked to this patient who I can still picture lying in bed and I can still picture talking to him as I did his paracentesis every three days. Um, and, you know, once you're an intern, you don't have time for that, right? You got to get your work done. You're exhausted. You got to get home. But as you're a third year resident, as third year medical student, you can truly link every disease state that you take care of to a human being. And that's going to stick in your head forever. Uh, that's such a great, great point. And uh, I remember distinctly when I was a third year and even into intern year when you didn't have a busy admissions um, night, you were just admitting, yeah. but it wasn't so busy. Yeah. I would, yeah. I, I, I had a, a piece of paper that I had made in a Word document and it had headings for all the things I wanted to gather. And I would print it off yeah. and I would put it on a clipboard and I would go and I'd sit down in the room and I would spend, if there was nothing going on, you know, an hour, uh, even more, get it, filling it all out and even kind of delving deep into the history and stuff. And then, you know, you're looking at the person, yeah. you're talking to them, you're making a few notes, um, hopefully not too uh, conspicuously. And um, you, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it's seared into your memory. Um, and you're the best right. on rounds, you know, it's right there in your mind. Right. Oh, right. Uh, did the patient do? Oh, yeah, of course. Actually. Yeah. I know that, you know, and I know yeah. where I wrote it. Um, so that's yeah. really great tip. And yeah. then my last point yeah. about hit. Okay. Your experience speaks to what I actually long suspect. And we wrote a paper on this, I think with Austin Lammers, uh, uh called heparin induced thrombocytopenia, tremendous need to randomize. I bet in the current strategy, the current paradigm where we, where we are extremely suspicious at low suspicion, yep. we send antibody and SRA reflex testing yep. and switch to Argatraban. I bet that if you compared our strategy to a lesser strategy of, a, of just stopping heparin or even continuing the heparin while you wait for the antibody because the pretest probability is really so low, I bet we're actually doing harm to people. The bleed risks on these anticoagulants are yeah. non-trivial. Argatraban yeah. is so yeah. labile. And so like, you know, I think if you randomize, you'd actually show our paradigm is actually hurting people, but that's the speculation. Right, right. And you're, you're apt now to blame the disease rather than your treatment, which the patient may not need. Um, I'm not sure you could ever do that trial, but would be a good one to do. You, there's a lot of trials that people aren't sure we can do. But you know who is sure we can do them? I am. <laughs> I, I'm sure. And I'm okay. Well, uh, I, I've heard. Yeah. I've heard on Twitter that you won't accept any treatment that doesn't have a randomized control trial. <laughs> you know, I, I just want to clarify my point of view on randomized trials that people don't understand. One. People always say, we don't have a randomized trial for smoking. Okay, uh, oh, that's very why, you know, you also don't have a randomized trial of getting gunshot wound to the chest or drinking a glass of benzene. So we don't do randomized trials for putative harms. We never have, we never will. Putative harms, we use risk factor epidemiology. Um, you omit the putative harm if you don't think the upside is worth the potential for harm. And for putative harms like a gunshot wound to the chest, y the effect size is so large, you only need to see it once to know, me thinks I don't want a bullet in my chest. Okay, right. Uh, and then for benefits, also parachute effects, we don't. Um, there's no randomized control trial for platinum and testicle cancer. It's got a 97% cure rate. You wouldn't need such a study. Um, and there's no randomized trial um, uh, uh, for liver transplantation for fulminant hepatic failure. Uh, it, you, again, you, you wouldn't need such a study. Um, uh, the effect is so glaring. However, for modest to marginal effect sizes, 
Come on! I mean, what do you want? The effect size is at best, you know, uh, in Bangladesh, the effect size was 0.14 of one percentage point. It's one-sixth of one percent. And you're telling me you can see that with your naked eye? And I can I mean, get out of here. You can't see that. Oh, and that's the other thing I hate, where people say, in my experience, it works. I was like, how, how? I was like, do you understand what kind of savant you'd have to be to have to be able to, in your own experience with N of 200, to detect effect sizes on the order of half of one percentage point? Point? You would you can't do that. A human being can't detect that. I mean, God, what are you telling me? All right. Anyway, <laughs> my my pet peeves. Um, you know, but that's why you keep writing. I've published right. like four or five papers on randomized control trials, and I've had four or five people read them this last year. <laughs> Just in the last year, four or five people read. Them. <laughs> Okay, so listeners should check out your podcast. I really enjoyed what I heard, and I was particularly impressed with your audio quality. That's important. And I've, um, I've heard you say that if someone gave like the meaning of life, but the audio quality was poor, you wouldn't listen to it. I, I would. I wouldn't listen. It would be like original archival footage found of of Je- Jesus counseling, and and I'd say, oh, that's great. It's grainy audio. I'll, <laughs> I'll I'll wait for the transcript. Uh, yeah, it's gotta be. It's got to be like you're whis- whispering in their ear. Um, all right, Adam, thank you so much for taking time out of a busy, busy Sunday to record this uh, very important plenary session. Listeners should check out your podcast. The first podcast is out, Symptom to Diagnosis. So many great, great, and, and that's a great one for internal medicine residents. Um, listen to one on your drive to work every day. By the end of it, um, you'll be halfway there. Um, and uh, the new. Yeah, and the new podcast is great. Uh, Fridays is the day you write your reflections about being a doctor. I really enjoy those. Um, Tuesday will someday be the day where we uh, uh, insult uh, the news media with journalism. Um, But check out Sensible Medicine. Uh, It's a great place. Great. Thank you again, Vinay. Thank you.